0: Welcome to episode 54 of the Idea Blog podcast on the Criminal Code of Canada. The episode is on sections 59 to 61 and is entitled The Self Fulfilling Words of Sedition or Presuming the Worst. Sedition as with treason and other offences under Part 2 of the Criminal Code, is an offence against public order. It is directed to expressive communication, verbal or written, which promotes unlawful violent upheaval of the government, akin to treason. There are a number of exceptions to this general concept of sedition to permit lawful criticism of governmental actions, The punishment for sedition is severe, attracting a maximum term of 14 years incarceration. There are many issues arising from this section. The obvious one involves a discussion of the constitutionality of the section, considering it engages charter expression, albeit violent expression, that would most likely be saved under Section 1. For further discussion on that issue, see Boucher and the King from 1949 and Regina and Kiekstra from 1990, both Supreme Court of Canada cases. An additional issue stems from the ever-present public policy question as to why certain sections still remain in the criminal code when there are many other sections which could capture the essence of this offense. For the sake of keeping this podcast contained in time and space, I will not discuss the obvious issues, but will concentrate on the presumption of having a seditious intention by proof of the speaking of seditious words, such as the publishing of seditious libel, or being a party to a seditious conspiracy. The podcast may seem a tad esoteric as a result. I apologize for that in advance but I believe the discussion will reveal a singular truth about this section as well as raise a doubt in our mind as to the efficacy of a common-sense notion that is regularly relied upon in our courts. The circularity and the historical meaning of this presumption suggests this section raises charter issues not on the basis of a Section 2B which is a freedom of expression section, but on the well-known and well-worn presumption of innocence under Section 11D of our Charter. First, a little housekeeping on the background of the sections. The offence, as with many of the offences under Part 2, came to Canada from the English common law. A version of the offense is found in the 1892 criminal code under sections 123 to 124. The punishment for the various forms of sedition in 1892 was 2 years imprisonment, a marked contrast to the punishment found in the current code, and as I referred to earlier in this podcast, Except for the punishment, the 1892 version of sedition is quite similar to the current section 61 and to section 59 sub 1 to subsection 3. The original sections also provided very similar exceptions to the meaning of seditious intention as found under the current section 60. However, the original sections did not describe seditious intention, nor did it provide for a presumption, as stipulated under the current Section 59, subsection 4. This addition was brought into the Code in 1936. It is in Burbage's Digest to the Criminal Law of Canada, which predates the Code, where we perceive a clear understanding of the meaning of seditious intention and the use of the presumption. Article 123 of Burbage's defines seditious intention as follows. A seditious intention is an intention to bring into hatred or contempt or to excite disaffection against the person of her majesty, her heirs or successors, or the government and constitution of the United Kingdom or of Canada as by law established or either House of Parliament or the administration of justice, or to excite Her Majesty's subjects to attempt, otherwise than by lawful means, the alteration of any matter in the state by law established, or to incite any person to commit any crime in disturbance of the peace or to raise discontent or disaffection amongst Her Majesty's subjects, or to promote feelings of ill will and hostility between different classes of such subjects. This form of sedition is certainly broader than the now contemplated offence, as it does not restrict the intention to a violent one or an unlawful one, considering a seditious intention can be shown through the intention to excite disaffection against the crown and state. There are cases discussing the implication of this definition of sedition, notably cases involving actions during wartime. For instance, in Rex and Barron, a 1918 Saskatchewan Court of Appeal case, the Court of Appeal considered sedition in relation to seditious words spoken during World War One. Those words are as follows, quote, everyone who gives to the Red Cross is crazy. If no one would give to the Red Cross, the war would stop. The other country would beat this country if no one would give to the Red Cross, end quote. The accused... Baron was found guilty of sedition by a jury. The issue on appeal was the admission of similar previous sentiments expressed by the accused. The conviction was affirmed, but with a dissent. The court discussed the difference between a merely disloyal statement and one which is, quote, calculated to raise disaffection, end quote. An expression of an opinion in a, quote, chance conversation, end quote, was different than the seditious intention evinced by trying to persuade people not to contribute to the war effort, quote, for the avowed purpose of enabling the enemy to win the war, end quote. The conviction was upheld as the purpose of the appellant's comments, according to the Saskatchewan Chief Justice Hultane, who wrote the majority, were, quote, equivalent to raising disaffection, end quote, as the words would, quote, stir up a spirit of disloyalty, even by a mercenary appeal, leading to action or inaction in favor of the enemy, end quote. The present offense found under section 61 reads as follows, everyone who speaks seditious words, or publishes a seditious libel, or is a party to a seditious conspiracy is guilty of an indictable offence and liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 14 years. There are three ways in which a person can be charged with sedition under this section. First, the accused can speak seditious words. Second, the accused can be charged for publishing seditious libel and thirdly the accused may be charged as a party to seditious conspiracy. All three modes of committing the offense require, as an element of the actus reus, or prohibited act, proof of a seditious act, such act being defined under Section 59. Section 59 offers a cumbersome layered definition of sedition. Section 59 subsection 1 defines seditious words as words that express a seditious intention. The phrase seditious intention" is a presumption based on conduct as enumerated in a non exhaustive manner under section fifty nine subsection four. The conduct which give rise to the presumption of seditious intention, is teaching, advocating, publishing, or advocating in writing, the use without the authority of law of force as a means of accomplishing a governmental change within Canada. Thus, actions are transformed into intentions. The actus reus becomes the mens rea, At first glance, this does not seem so radical. In crimes of minimal intent, such as assault, Justice Wilson, in the 1988 Bernard decision on the role of intoxication for general intent offences, suggested the mens rea can be inferred from the actus reus. In other words, the intention required under Section 265, assault, an intentional application of force can be gleaned from the application of that force. This, however, is an inference which may be drawn, not must be drawn, and it does not relieve the Crown from its legal burden to prove the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. The problem with this circular relationship in sedition between the actus reus and the mens rea is there is no inference to be made. The inference is self made as a presumption. Historically, the presumption relating to seditious intention was specifically described and articulated under Article 124 of Burbage's Digest to the Criminal Law of Canada and was as follows. In determining whether the intention with which any words were spoken, any document was published, or any agreement was made, was or was not seditious, every person must be deemed to intend the consequences which would naturally flow from his conduct at the time and under the circumstances in which he so conducted himself. This presumption reads very similar to what is the permissive inference the trier of fact may draw that a person intends the natural consequences of their actions. This common sense inference, as Justice Moldaver will later call it in the 2012 Wallie decision, sounds similar to the minimal intent comment made by Justice Wilson in the context of intoxication. In fact, intoxication was a factor in the Wallie decision is the directive, must for a presumption rather than a permissive in the may for an inference. The mandatory presumption is a legal construct in which a tri of fact must infer the presumed fact upon proof of an underlying fact. Presumptions are rebuttable, but in being so, the party opposing the application of such presumption has the burden to displace it. In other words, the directive used for presumptions is the status quo or the default position whilst the permissive does not suggest or contemplate a position other than what is required in the legal burden and standard of proof of the burden on the crown to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. The difference is not puerile but real. In the 1969 Ontario Court of Appeal decision of Regina and Ort, the court clarified that this common-sense notion of a person intending the consequence of their actions was not a presumption or a must-infer, but was a permissive inference only. Making such an inference permissive was needed to ensure the burden on the Crown did not shift onto the accused in a criminal case." Such a shift of the burden of proof would be contrary to another more well known presumption, the presumption of innocence. Of course, the presumption of innocence, as I've discussed in earlier podcasts that can be found online at my IDEA blog webpage is a fundamental expression of our societal values and as constitutionalized under section 11d must be preserved in the face of other presumptions which may run contrary to that core concept. Well and good to turn this common sense notion into a permissive concept in order to preserve the sentiment from charter scrutiny. However, to merely flip a switch from charter caution to charter friendly, causes concern. That concern is most evident when faced with the statutory presumption in sedition. In sedition, the very same notion as defined under Burbage's Article 124 is deemed a permissive inference under Wally. Which is it then? Is it permissive and constitutional or is it presumptive and contrary to Section 11D? Can a change of words change the weight of such a common-sense notion? One could argue that the concept relied upon with this presumption for sedition, that people mean what they do, is such a pernicious idea that labeling this notorious fact as a permissive inference is not only counterintuitive, but false. By not labeling this inference for what it is as a presumption, The court is preserving the constitutionality of the concept in form, yet permitting the presumption to live in content. This lends weight to my previous blog posting on the Wally decision that the inference found in common law that a person intends the natural consequence of their actions imports an objective dimension into subjective mens rea offenses, specifically murder. Which was at issue in the Wally case. There are exceptions to the presumption where, under Section 60, certain acts would not deem a person to have seditious intention. Even that term deem strengthens the argument that we were working in a legal doctrine or construct which is mandating a substitution of the actus reus for the mens rea upon proof of certain acts, a substitution, not an inference. This, I suggest, goes further than a violation of section 11d and becomes a violation of section 7, similar to the concern raised in Regina and Davio in 1994, where the act of self-induced intoxication was used, contrary to the Charter, as a substitute for mens rea. This elimination of a need for a fault element runs contrary to the principles of fundamental justice, as found in Regina and Viancourt and Regina and Martina. An accused could still be convicted despite a reasonable doubt the accused intended to commit. The sedition. Those exceptions do permit, however, healthy political dissent. Thus, under section 60, no person shall be deemed to have a seditious intention by reason only that he intends in good faith to show that Her Majesty has been misled or mistaken in her measures, to point out errors or defects in the government or constitution of Canada or a province, Parliament or the legislature of a province or the administration of justice in Canada. To procure by lawful means the alteration of any matter of government in Canada or to point out for the purpose of removal matters that produce or tend to produce feelings of hostility and ill will between different classes of persons in Canada. Now, that section 60 sub D, which is the last paragraph I spoke to, uh, that is to point out for the purpose of removal matters that produce or tend to produce feelings of hostility and ill will between different classes of persons in Canada, could use further explanation. I take this oddly worded exception as a provision for a public good argument. Argument actually reminds me of Regina and Buzanga, and DeRosche, an Ontario Court of Appeal decision from 1979 where Justice Martin, G. Arthur Martin, discussed the charge against Roche and Buzanga that involved the publication of a pamphlet that was suggesting that the French-speaking members of the community Were to be reviled and therefore they were charged under the now section 319 willfully promoting hatred. Part of Bouzenga and de Rocher's defense and they did testify is that they themselves were part of that community the French speaking community and that the purpose of the pamphlet was not to promote hatred but to point out the fallacy of the community sentiment that there was an issue that needed to be resolved that involved the French-speaking community as a subversive element of their community. So it was for the purpose of highlighting and a purpose of satire, which satire often does, is say one thing and mean the other. So this Section 60 sub D exception could be viewed as a public interest argument whereby somebody appears to be making seditious arguments using seditious language, but is really trying to eradicate professions of hatred against others. And therefore, this subsection clarifies that such sentiments are not seditious. Indeed, through this exception, we are not presuming the worst of people. The sedition sections are, as I said at the start of this podcast, an example of the kind of public behaviors we deem worthy of punishment through our criminal law however what was worthy in 1892 may not be as much of a concern now where we have some other tools at disposal in other sections of the code the emphasis of this offense should be on the potential violence propounded by the offense and not on the words of dissent which is protected and accepted in any healthy democracy. If violence is the key then the section fails to resonate with that concept as a result of the poor wording of the section and the choice to rely on a mandatory presumption of intent. Here is yet another example of a criminal offense that we need to add the list of code reform. Thank you for joining me in this podcast. I encourage you to go to my webpage www.ideablog.ca and look at the text version of this podcast for some links and for links, of course, to the case to some of my other podcasts, and also to my other blogs that may connect to this as well. Thank you, and I will see you when we discuss the next sections of the Criminal Code under episode 55.